Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 17. Scripture reading this morning is going to again be Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find Luke 17, 20 on page 876. We looked at these verses last Sunday, and our focus was on Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees recorded for us in the first two verses. This morning, we're going to shift our focus to the second half, where where Jesus turns to his disciples and, and gives them further instruction about the kingdom of God and about its coming. So let us hear together the reading of God's word, Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. This is the very word of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken And the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we do come before you humbly this morning, asking that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Luke to write these words would now be present here with us. That He would open our minds to understand. That He would open our hearts to receive. That He would strengthen our wills to obey. That we might bring forth the fruit of the gospel in our lives in great abundance. All to the praise of Your glorious name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It doesn't get any better than this. That was the punchline of a commercial I saw countless times as a kid. A bunch of rugged-looking guys sitting around a campfire out in the middle of nowhere, raising their cans in the air and saying, it just doesn't get 
any better than this. As a kid, I was always perplexed by that ad. I never could understand how someone sitting in the middle of nowhere around an open fire could think that he was experiencing the best of human existence. How could they possibly think that that was as good as it gets? However, lest you think that my maturity was beyond its years, let me say that that my incredulity at their profession was was not at all theologically informed. I suspect I could have easily understood the same words if they had been spoken by someone standing on the first tee of Pebble Beach, or if they had been spoken by someone sitting down to eat a fine steak at Ruth's Chris. That I could have understood. It was the fact that they were out in the middle of nowhere that perplexed me. I wonder about you. I wonder how would you... To find the good life. When were you be, when would you be tempted to say it doesn't get any better than this? But whatever your conception of the good life, whatever you think is the best that this life has to offer, in these verses, Jesus tells us that whatever it is, no matter how you conceive of it, whatever is in your mind's eye, it is decidedly not as good as it gets. Even if your conception of the good life is entirely sanctified, even if you you have totally matured in the area of, of the American dream, even if you understand that your greatest good is giving your life away in the service of your Lord and of His people, still, that is not as good as it gets. Your, your life here and now simply cannot be as good as as it gets, we see this in Jesus' words to his disciples, beginning in verse 22. As I said, we looked at verses 20 and 21 last Sunday when, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for failing to see the present reality of the kingdom. And, and Jesus told them plainly that, that the kingdom is, is now here. We are now God's people, living in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his provision and his protection. That is our current reality. We we presently live in the kingdom. However, having affirmed that, having affirmed that, that present reality, Jesus now turns to his disciples to assure them that their present experience is not all that there is to the gospel. It is, it is not their full hope. There is more to come. It will actually get better. We see this beginning In verse 22, notice what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that that phrase, the the Son of Man, that is is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. It's it's one of the ways that he refers to himself more than, than any others. And it seems odd to us. It's not a phrase that we readily understand. But Jews in Jesus' day, Jews in the first century, they understood what Jesus was claiming when he used that title. Because the title echoed back to the Old Testament, echoed back, in fact, to Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what Daniel writes. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And he, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom is one that shall not be 
destroyed. Do you hear what Daniel says? He says, listen, he had this vision. And in this vision, he, he was in the throne room of the Ancient of Days, a name for God, the one who was Alpha and Omega, the one who was before even time began. And in the throne room of the Ancient of Days, he saw one come, one who was like the Son of Man. And he comes before the Ancient of Days, and to this Son of Man is given the kingdom, is given a dominion, a dominion that is eternal, a dominion that consists of all nations, a a dominion that will never be conquered, a dominion that will never be destroyed. To this one is given the kingdom of God. He will sit upon the throne. That is who the Son of Man is. It is the one who receives the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is claiming to be that one. He is claiming to be the one who brings, who who receives from the Ancient of Days the kingdom. The one who will rule on David's throne forever and ever. The one of whose kingdom there will be no end. By referring to himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is claiming to be the one in whom all the promises of God find their fulfillment. He is claiming to be the coming King, the Messiah. And when he talks about the days of the Son of Man, he is talking about the event that we see depicted in Daniel chapter 7, the the day on which he receives his kingdom. He is talking about that day when the kingdom will be fully established. Jesus is saying that the days are coming when his disciples will desire to see more than they are experiencing. Now, yes, the kingdom is is now present, but the days are coming when they will recognize the the incompleteness of what is theirs and they will long for more. They they will long to see the the full kingdom come. They They will long to experience it in its full reality. They will long for something more than they presently have. But they will not see it, Jesus says. They will long for the full presence of the kingdom, but it will not be yet. They will long to see the kingdom's full consummation, but but it won't come. They will still find themselves in the present as as it is. Now, I suspect that everyone here has felt that longing at some point. You know what it is to to long for the day when God's good work will be complete. You know what it is to experience the brokenness of this world and long for the day when all things will be put right. We sometimes speak of Jesus coming to turn the world upside down, but the truth is He actually comes to turn the world right side up. He comes to to put things back as they are supposed to be. He comes to, to fix what is broken. He comes to heal what is sick. He comes to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. And we long for that day because we experience brokenness. We experience sickness. We we experience things not as they are supposed to be here and now. And so with the disciples, we long for the kingdom to come in full. We long not to have to deal with this brokenness anymore. But also like them, we don't see it. As the author of Hebrews says, we don't yet see all things in submission to Him. We we don't yet see all things under His feet. And so we groan and we wait and we long to see the days of His coming. And because we long for it, 
We are susceptible to certain false teaching. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard against those who say, look here or, or look over here. We, we see it in verse 23. Notice what he says. He says, they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Now just think for a moment. The, the people who are saying, look over here or, or, or look over there. What are they claiming? What, what are they assuming about the kingdom of God? How can they make the claim that the kingdom of God is now here or is now there. How can they claim that the kingdom has already come? This is what caused the Pharisees to taunt Jesus in the first place. All they had to do was look out the window and they saw that Rome was still in charge. How, how is it possible that anyone could claim that the kingdom has, has already come when they read the morning paper? The only way you can make such a claim, the only way that you can claim that the kingdom has already come is if you believe that the coming of the kingdom and all the promises of God are, are merely or, or purely spiritual. As if our present experience of the kingdom really is as, as good as it gets. And we know that there were some in the first century who made such claims. Paul writes about them in his letters. He, he writes about those who claim that the resurrection had already happened. Well, the only way you can make a claim like that, the only way you can say that the resurrection has already happened is if you make the resurrection into something purely spiritual, merely spiritual, something that, that happens in your heart but that has no bearing on ex- external reality. And Paul says, no, that's not what I mean when I talk about a resurrection. When I say that you're going to be raised with Christ, I don't mean that it's, it's a purely internal thing. I don't mean that it's a, it's a merely spiritual thing. Your body is going to raise, and that which was perishable is going to be raised imperishable. That which was dishonorable is going to be raised in glory. That which was weak is going to be raised in, in unimaginable strength. Since there is a, a, a real, physical, visible manifestation of the resurrection coming. And Jesus says the same thing about the kingdom here. He says those who say that the kingdom is here, those who say that it is there, they, they are claiming that it is merely spiritual, that it's, that it's something secret, that it's, that it's something hidden. Jesus says don't believe them. Don't let them diminish your hope. Don't let them undermine your confidence. Yes, the kingdom is a present reality that is, that is spiritual, that is, that is hidden. But it's like a mustard seed. And one day, that which was hard to see, that which was almost invisible, will be as clearly visible as a mustard plant in the garden. It will, it will surround the horizon. You won't be able to miss it. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 24. He says, don't worry. Don't worry. You won't be able to miss it. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Have you ever come across someone and they were just sort of oblivious to what was going on in the world? Maybe they didn't know who won the election or, you know, maybe they didn't know a new Star Wars movie was coming out or, you know, whatever your frame of reference happens to be. They, they, they were missing something obvious. We wonder, where, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? You know, you, you would have had to be, been living in a cave to not know what is going on. Well, Jesus says that the, the coming of the Son of Man will be like that to the nth degree. It will not be possible to miss. It will be trending everywhere. It will go viral. Everybody will know. You will not possibly be able to miss it. It will will be like lightning flashing across the sky from one side to the other. When it comes, you will know. And so therefore, do not believe the people who say that that this is as good as it gets. Do not believe the people that say it it is here now. 
A day beyond your imagining is coming. And when it comes, you will know. You will, you will know. You won't have to wonder. You won't have to wonder, well, I wonder if it's come already. I wonder, I wonder if I missed it. I, I, I wonder if it's here. No. You will know. It'll be like lightning flashing across the sky. And because it will be like that, you can know it is not here yet. In fact, notice what Jesus says in verse 25. It says it, it can't actually come in, in, his, in that day. It can't happen yet. Why? Because first, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. The, the coming of the kingdom could not come before the cross. Think about what Jesus is saying. Why why does Jesus make this point here? What is is Jesus saying to his his disciples? He's he's telling them, yes, the kingdom is coming and you won't be able to miss it, but you need to understand that the kingdom cannot come before the cross. You see, the disciples were still a bit confused on this point. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that he was the Son of Man. They knew that he was the one who was going to to bring the kingdom. Peter himself had confessed it. You you probably remember the scene. Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And he says, well, you know, some people think you're Elijah. Some people maybe you think you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others think you're one of the, the Old Testament prophets. Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, answering for the twelve, says, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ. You are the, the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes. This has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit Himself. And on this rock, on, on this foundation, I will build my church. But let me tell you, I have to go to the cross. I have to be betrayed. I have to be condemned. I have to be crucified. And when Peter hears about the cross, the one who had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ, immediately begins to tell the Christ, Jesus, don't speak of such things. That that can't possibly happen. You can't be arrested. You can't be condemned. You can't be crucified. We will never let such things happen to you. And do you remember Jesus' response? Jesus turns to the one to whom he had just said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And he says to him, Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter did not have his mind set on the things of God, but on the things of man. He was dreaming of a kingdom without a cross. And Jesus was saying, It cannot be. The kingdom cannot come apart from the cross. But why? Why is it necessary for Jesus to grow to the cross if the kingdom is going to come? Why is it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross if the kingdom is going to be established on earth as it is in heaven? We have our answer in the pages of the New Testament. We're told again and again that it was necessary for for Jesus to go to the cross Because it was only through the cross that that, that the Father's plan for Jesus could be accomplished. It was only through the cross that Jesus could redeem for Himself a people. We see this in the garden as as Jesus prays the, the night that He's about to be betrayed. He prays to His Father three times, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from Me. 
It was no easy thing for, for Jesus to go to the cross, not because he, he feared the, the physical pain of the crucifixion itself, but because he knew that on the cross he would bear the sins of the world. He knew that up, upon the cross he would be forsaken of his Father. He knew that, that on the cross the, the judgment that was due to us for our sins would be poured out in full upon him. He would endure the, the, the wrath of God in all its fury. And he said, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. And the father remained silent. The father said, there's no other way. Go to the cross. Accomplish your mission. Redeem for yourself a people. But why? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross if redemption was going to be accomplished? It is because God is a holy God who cannot simply overlook the sins of a rebellious people. Yes, He is a God loving and compassionate. Yes, He is a God full of of steadfast love for His people. He is a God who delights to forgive iniquity. But He is also a God who can by no means clear the guilty. And how do you hold those two pieces together? How do you have a God who is, who is perfectly holy and at the same time a God who, who overflows with steadfast love for His people? How do you have a God who is slow to anger and abounding in, in mercy and yet a God who will be absolutely just? This is the question of the Old Testament. This is the question that the Old Testament constantly leaves us with. And we find our answer only in Christ. It's what Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 3. If you'll turn over there with me just briefly. Romans chapter 3. We use these words as our assurance of pardon this, this morning. We're, we're told, beginning in verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That's not a word we use all the time, but it's a word that simply means Jesus was the sacrifice that, that absorbed the wrath of God. He was the, the sacrifice that, that sacrificed the demands of justice. He was the propitiation. And we have now received all the benefits of His death by faith alone. But notice what he says there, right in the middle of verse 25. He says, This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. God, even though He was holy, had not yet poured out His wrath on sin. And all the universe wanted to know, God, what are you going to do about sin? What are you going to do about this sin problem? Are you really going to let the blood of a few bulls and a few goats stand in the way? Are you really going to let that cover? And God says, no, I am a holy God. The blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. But I will provide the blood of one who can. I will put forth my own Son as the sacrifice for sins. He will die in the place of sinners. And by His death, they will be redeemed. So that Paul can write in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be both just, that he might maintain his own righteousness and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that a holy God can look upon the ungodly and say, righteous. How does he do that? He does it through Christ. 
So that we who are still sinners are yet righteous in the eyes of God. And it is only that gospel that makes the coming of the kingdom good news. Do you understand that? The coming of the kingdom is not good news for those who are enemies of the king. The coming of the kingdom is not good news for those who are traitors and and, and treasonous rebels against the throne. My family likes to watch the, the BBC show Robin Hood. And it's a familiar story. If you've never seen the show, you still, you still know the, the story. And you know that when Richard comes home, it's not going to be good news for John. And it's not going to be good news for the sheriff. And it's not going to be good news for, for Guy of Gisborne. Why? Because they are traitors against the throne. Who is it that will be vindicated? Who is it that will be publicly acknowledged on that day? It is those who have been faithful to the king. Those who have continued to bow the knee to him and to him alone. The coming of the kingdom is only good news for the subjects of the king. But we're all traitors. We're all treasonous. We're all rebels. We're all the sheriff. We've all done what was in our own interest. We've all brought down upon our heads a, a, sub, a, a sentence of condemnation. So how is that day of judgment transformed into a day of good news only through the cross of Jesus Christ? And thus Jesus says, listen, the kingdom is coming. It it is not here yet in full. Don't believe the liars. But recognize this, that I first have to go to the cross. Because if I don't go to the cross first, that day will not be good news for any of you. This is what we see in the the verses that that follow. Notice what Jesus says. He says, that day is going to be a day of decisive judgment. Notice he says, says, that day will come, and it's not yet, it's going to come, and you're not going to be able to miss it, but it's going to come in an unexpected way. We, We see this beginning in verse 26. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 17. Beginning in verse 26, he says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And he talks about eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. He, He doesn't mean to denigrate those things. He doesn't mean to say that these are bad things. These are just the things of normal life. He says, but they would continue to go about the things of normal life. They were just doing life with no awareness that this day loomed on the horizon. And when it came, it was too late. On the day that Noah entered the ark, those who had not repented and believed, those who had not believed Noah's message, they were swept away in judgment. It was the same in the days of Lot. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting. Again, just the things of of normal life. And yet, On the day when the judgment came, they were consumed in in fire and sulfur. They didn't know it was coming. They were just busy about doing the, the normal things of life. And suddenly, that day came unexpectedly. And when it came, it came quickly. This is the second thing we see. Jesus tells us that when you see it on the horizon, it will be too late to prepare. You must prepare now because then... It will be too late. This is the significance of what Jesus says in in verse 31. 
Look at what he writes. He says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Now, I don't think Jesus is suggesting by, by any stretch of the imagination that, that when you see that day coming, you better run for it because you might get away. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus makes it abundantly clear just a few verses later that that day is going to be universal, that there will be no exceptions, that there will be no escape. Notice what he says to his disciples' question in verse 37. He says, where, Lord? And they say to him, where the corpses? There the vultures were gathered. Where is all this going to take place? Where will this judgment be poured out? Everywhere where there's death. Everywhere where the sinners are, that is where the judgment will take place. There will be no escape. So Jesus isn't telling them that, that, that on that day they, they might be able to get away if they run quickly. He's telling them, listen, on that day it will be too late. It will be like raiders descending from the hills. You won't have time to run inside and make preparations. You, it will be too late at that moment. Prepare now, he says. And so Jesus says it will come unexpectedly. It will come quickly. And finally, when it comes, it will come with decisive Judgment. It's what we saw already in the, the comparison with the days of, of Lot and, and Noah. Those were days of, of judgment. And he says it again in verses 34 and, and 35. He says, on that day, two will be in one bed and one will be taken and the other left. And there's some debate about which one is, is getting the better end of the stick here. You know, which one is being saved? Which one is being taken in judgment? It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that the, the judgment will be decisive and it will be final. It will separate even Family members. Just because your, your wife or your, your parents are, are in Christ doesn't mean that you will be saved on that day. Two will be together. One will be taken and the other left. Two will be working together. One will be taken and the other left. The judgment will be final. It will be decisive. And therefore, Jesus says, because the day of judgment will come and because it will be good news only for those who are in me, only those who are faithfully my subjects, you must decide now. You must side with me now. But how do we do that? What does it mean to prepare for that day now? Jesus tells us if we're not ready now, we won't be ready then. But, but what does it mean to be ready? He gives us an answer in verses 32 and 33. He says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This echoes what Jesus said earlier in in Luke chapter 9. He said, whoever would be my disciple, whoever would be one of mine, whoever would walk with me, whoever would be a subject of my kingdom, this is what he must do. He must daily deny himself, take up his cross, And follow me. Whoever would lose his life will save it. But the one who seeks to save his life will lose it. It's what Jesus is is saying here. If you seek to preserve your life, you'll lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake, you will keep it. If you will lose your life now, you will be ready for that day. So what does that mean? What does it mean to preserve your life? What does it mean to to lose your life? What is Jesus talking about? I think we can define it this way. To preserve your life, to seek to hold on to your life, to seek to save your life, is to say that your life is your own. And that it is determined by your own agenda. It is determined by your own interests. It is determined by your own desires. It is holding on to your life as your own possession and saying, I will do what is for me, what is in my interest, what is to my blessing. 
And Jesus says the one who does this, the one who holds on to his life, who seeks to, to serve God with the leftovers, who seeks to, to serve God with, with that which is, is left after he's done everything in his own interest. He says that one will lose his life even as Lot's wife did. But on the other hand, if you will lose your life now, that means if you will devote your life to God, if you will say, I am not my own, I've been bought with a price, my life is at His disposal, all of my resources, all of my opportunities, all of my everything is His and is in His service. If you will devote your life to Him, or as Paul says in in Romans chapter 12, if you will give your life to Him as a living sacrifice, then you will be ready for that day. You will save your life. What Paul's calling us to in Romans chapter 12 is something that he himself did. He's he's an example of this. In almost all of his letters, Paul introduces himself as a servant. There are those who serve, and then there are those who are servants. The one who is in charge, the one who is his own master, he can still serve because he chooses to. The one who has a servant is under authority. The one who is a servant is at the disposal of another. He doesn't hear the command and decide. He hears the command and does because that's who he is. And this is how Paul introduces himself. He says, I am a servant. I am even a slave of the Lord. Now Paul's particular assignment was to preach the gospel Paul had been set apart as an apostle to the Gentiles. And we see that he gave himself to that work unreservedly. He gave himself to that work without qualification, regardless of the costs to himself. He did the work that he was given to do. And he could say with all integrity, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is to do what he gives me to do. Now, we are not all called to be missionaries. We're not all called to to go and and preach the gospel as as Paul did. But we are all called to be servants. We have all been bought at a price. We are all called to devote our lives to Him without reservation or qualification. We are all called to say, in your service, at your disposal. This is what it means to, to lose your Life. This is what it means to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. And this is what it means to be ready for that day. For Jesus says, if you seek to save your life here and now, if you seek to, to serve yourself, if you seek to, to do your own thing, you will lose your life. That, that day will come upon you like a thief in the night and you will not be ready. But if you lose your life here and now, if you offer to Him your life without reservation or or qualification, if you devote yourself to His service, if you confess Him as your Lord and and bow your knee to Him as the the Almighty King, then on, on that day, you will be received into His kingdom. And those are your only two options. There is no third way. One will be taken and the other will be left. And so let me ask you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Jesus says it is coming. It is coming, and when it comes, it will come unexpectedly. When it comes, it will come quickly. And when it comes, it will come decisively. And so you must ask yourself now, are you ready for that day? I know that you long to see the kingdom. We all do. We all long to see the world put right. The question is, are you ready? 
Are you ready for the day when the kingdom will come? Will that day be for you a day of light or a day of darkness? Will that day be for you a day of salvation or a day of judgment? Will that day be for you a day of good news? It's the question that Jesus is is forcing us to, to ask. And I want you to hear this morning, if you have never confessed Him as Lord, if you have never bowed before Him as your rightful King, that I call you to do so even today. We don't do altar calls around here. And I know that confuses some of you because we're in the South. But, but we don't do altar calls around here. Because we don't want you to make an emotional decision in the moment that you don't want to stick with on Monday morning. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if you're still not ready to come forward on Monday, then I'm not really interested in you coming forward on Sunday night. And so we don't do altar calls, but we do want you to make this decision. We want you to decide that that you are going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, your rightful Lord. We want you to confess Him as your Savior and your King. We want you to, to put your hope in Him for the future, and we want you to devote your life to Him in full, knowing that if you will lose your life for Him today, you will not only receive life here and now, but you will receive life eternal in the age to come. And if you are here and you have made that decision, we want you to know that you have that assurance that when the kingdom comes, it will be a day of light. When the kingdom comes, it will be for you more than good news. It will be the best news. The best news Imaginable. Yes, right now you will have to endure. Yes, right now you will long for to see the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it and you will groan. But you will groan as one who has hope because you know Jesus' promise. You know that He said if you lose your life now, you will receive it back a million times over in the age to come. And because He has made that promise, because the one who has risen victorious over death itself, because He is the one who says these things are true, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We do thank You for Your grace. And we ask, Father, that that grace would prepare us for that coming day. Father, we don't know when it will be. We don't know if it will be today or a thousand years from now. We do not know But we know that you call us to be ready today. That you call us to to honor you as Lord today. Give us the grace to do so, Father. That we might not only enjoy the full benefits of the present reality of the kingdom, but, Father, that we might stand firmly in the hope of the kingdom to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.